0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Greetings, Brainiacs. I've got something a little different for you this week. Between last week's misadventure going into extra innings and the looming deadline of the super-secret project, I didn't have the 12 to 15 hours it takes to research, write, record, and edit a podcast. But what I did have was a collection of something called Moxie Minutes, 60 to 90 second long info bursts that I had produced on commission for a company that had a social media app. But they dropped me in the sort of stop returning emails kind of way. So good, bad or indifferent, I won't mention the name of the company. But that left me with a wealth of information on a variety of topics to share with you today. Before any further ado, though, I want to welcome our newest patron, Robin. Robin joined just in time to get a bonus mini episode about a particularly wild scandal at a 19th century Roman convent. Patreon content stays on Patreon, it doesn't come into the main show. So check out patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts to see what a modest but sincerely appreciated donation would get you. And now, our feature presentation. Was a cat elected mayor of an Alaska town? The small town of Talkeetna, Alaska, some 900 residents strong, found themselves without any mayoral candidates in the 1997 election. So the townsfolk wrote in a ginger tabby cat, named Stubbs. Or did they? While the story circulated widely, it came out later that Stubbs's election was actually a PR stunt. While he wasn't the official mayor, Stubbs did act as sort of an honorary mayor. He would meet with his constituents from his place, sitting on the counter in the general store, or he'd go next door to the pub where he was given a special catnip tea. Stores would sell souvenirs with Stubbs's face on them, And they saw an uptick in tourism to the tune of 30 or 40 people a day wanting to meet with the mayor. Far from the most interesting thing Talkeetna does to bring in tourists, they host an annual wilderness woman contest where local women prove their physical prowess with games of strength like tossing firewood and hunting moose. And the July Moose Dropping Festival, which is like a scaled-up version of Cow Pie Bingo, in which moose dung is flung from a helicopter every July, and onlookers try to guess where it will land. Why do we have the flavor blue raspberry when raspberries aren't blue? Outside of blue corn, you'd be hard-pressed to find blue foods in nature. Don't say blueberries, their skins are purple, but their insides are green. So why do we color things blue when we flavor them raspberry? We have to go back to the childhood favorite freezer pops like Otter Pops and Flava Ice, those glorious plastic tubes of frozen sugar water without which a summer is wasted. Manufacturers were having a difficult time making colors that corresponded to cherry, strawberry, watermelon, and raspberry distinct enough to tell them apart. It got more complicated when the FDA banned Red Dye number 2 for causing severe reactions and possibly being carcinogenic. It would make for better copy if there was some terribly clever reason the food scientists went to blue next. But the simple reason is, they had a surplus of blue coloring on hand they hadn't been able to use yet. We also have to mention the gold metal company that makes icy slushies, who were also early adopters of blue raspberry, possibly even the originators, depending on who you ask. Why does airline food seem so bad? It's the hallmark of lazy observational stand-up comics. What's the deal with airline food? To start with, airline food has to be made in advance in the vast majority of cases. And reheated food is never as good as food that's cooked fresh. But realistically, at high altitudes where cooking takes longer, in a galley that may be the size of a half bath if you're lucky, there would never be enough time to cook meals for dozens or even hundreds of people. But the real culprit here is the air. The dry air in an airplane cabin tends to suppress our sense of smell, which is a very important factor in our sense of taste. Likewise, low air pressure and ambient noise further impact the way we taste our food, suppressing our ability to taste both sweet and salty. For food to taste the same in the air as it does on the ground, The airline food prep service will generally add up to 30% more sugar or salt to your meal. You can enhance your airline dining experience by using a nasal spray to re-moisten the passages of the nose, or even noise-canceling headphones to block out the irritating background noise. Why aren't most beers and wines vegan? You'd be surprised how many animal products are included in the process of making beer and wine we we'll leave aside obvious things like cream liqueurs that have dairy and mead that's made from honey. All young wines are hazy due to tiny particles like proteins, tannins, and phenolics. They're perfectly safe to drink, but not desirable to the consumer, so vineyards and breweries use what are called fining agents. These help the particles to precipitate out. Traditional fining agents include casein, a milk protein, albumin, which is egg whites, gelatin, made from hooves and connective tissue, and isinglass, fish swim bladder. That was the agent of choice for the Guinness Brewing Company. But don't worry if you're a vegan who likes a pint of the black stuff. They're no longer using the swim bladders. There are a number of vegan wines and beers on the market today that use things like bentonite, a type of very fine clay, or activated charcoal, to make their wines and beers jewel-clear. Why are there no B batteries? In 1924, a system of standardized battery sizes and names was developed by industry and government representatives. Based on the alphabet, the smallest single-cell batteries were dubbed A and went on from there to B, C, and D. There was also a number 6 battery that was pretty commonly used, so it was grandfathered in without a name change. As battery technology improved and batteries got smaller, new sizes of batteries were made, such as AA and AAA. These newer batteries were the right size for the growing consumer electronics market, so they caught on quickly. C and D cell batteries found their niche in medium and high-drain devices. But single A and B batteries simply didn't have much of a market, and have more or less disappeared in the U.S. They are still out there, though. A batteries were used in early model laptop battery packs. B batteries are still sometimes used in Europe for lanterns and bicycle lamps. There are also F batteries, which you can probably buy at your local store. They're the big lantern batteries used in flashlights. Should you treat a jellyfish sting by peeing on it? The thing that's hurting you in a jellyfish sting is a nematocyst. That's the barbed, venom-dispensing cell in a jellyfish's stinger. While urea would help to remove the bits of tentacle, human urine is too dilute. It also contains salt, which triggers the nematocysts to fire more venom into the skin. All you're doing by whipping it out and peeing on your friend with the jellyfish sting is embarrassing yourself, and potentially making your friendship a little awkward. Trying to scrape away the tentacles as the first step could also be bad, as the pressure would trigger the nematocysts, as would alcohol, whether rubbing alcohol or, say, beer. Other home remedies, like shaving cream, baking soda, seawater, and my mother's tried-and-true meat tenderizer, also have no effect. Your best bet is vinegar. It prevents the nematocysts from firing off more venom. So, if you get stung by a jellyfish, pour vinegar on the affected area and have someone with gloves remove the stingers with tweezers. Then, counterintuitively, you want to apply heat to the area, not cold. Does the position of a horse's hooves on a statue tell you how its rider died? There's long standing folk wisdom that you can tell how a soldier commemorated in a statue died by the position of his horse's hooves. Supposedly, one hoof off the ground means that he was wounded in battle, two hooves mean that he died in the battle, and all four hooves on the ground means that he survived every battle unharmed. This is purely folklore with no foundation in history. It's been passed from word to mouth and even written down as fact for so long that it's difficult to trace its origin. If you look at the 30-plus equestrian statues around Washington, D.C., you'll see that only about one in three fits this said rule. Richmond, Virginia, with its Civil War general statues on Monument Avenue, doubles down on the folklore by saying that statues facing to the north are of men who died in battle and those facing south survived. However, five of the eight statues are facing east. How likely is there to be poison or razor blades in your children's halloween candy it's a fear that's been propagated for 40 years apples in razor blades poison in candy parents checking the wrappers to make sure they're intact or even taking bags of candy to local hospitals or police stations to have it x-rayed it may be much ado about nothing ucla sociologist joel best looked at records for the period between 1958 and 2008 and found 78 cases of foreign objects or substances in Halloween candy, so slightly more than one case per year in a country of over 300 million people. Two of the reported cases resulted in deaths, but were later found not to have arisen from candies received while trick-or-treating. One case was of a child who found his uncle's heroin stash and overdosed, and the family then blamed it on Halloween candy. Another was of a father who poisoned pixie sticks that he gave out to random children to cover his tracks when he planned to kill his own children for life insurance money. The first case of a sharp metal object intentionally put into Halloween candy didn't come up until the year 2000. In many of the cases Joel Best reviewed, the objects were actually put into the food by the people who reported them as a prank or a desperate bid for attention. I'm not telling you how to raise your kids, but their Halloween candy is probably okay. Why does coffee make you poop? 53% of women and 19% of men report that coffee exonerates the bowels. The scientific reason for this is still unclear. It's not that researchers have no idea. They have too many ideas, each of them as half right as the last. Caffeine definitely plays a role, but it's only one piece of an ensemble. Caffeine contains colon-stimulating agents that create peristalsis, the wave-like muscle contractions in the intestines that move things along. We know about this increased muscle activity through the selflessness of study volunteers, who agreed to the use of a probe during the study and to whom we owe our gratitude. However, decaf coffee also has a laxative effect, and other caffeine-containing products like energy drinks don't. Coffee contains over a thousand organic compounds, including multiple kinds of acid. A compound called chlorogenic acid triggers higher bile production and higher production of gastric acid. Exorphins in coffee, both regular and decaf, cause our bodies to release the hormones gastrin and cholecystokinin, which encourage movement of the intestines. Coffee is also high in magnesium, which can make people poop, and there are yet more potential causes that will have to go unnamed for now. How did Tootsie Rolls candy save lives during the Korean War? Tootsie Rolls hold the distinction of having saved the lives of American troops during the Battle of Chosin Reservoir during the Korean War. The entrenched Marines were outnumbered, outgunned, suffering below zero temperatures, and running out of mortar rounds. They couldn't call for resupply because the area was thick with enemy anti-air emplacements. Their supplies would be shot down. After two desperate days of waiting, the radio men had to risk it, using the code word Tootsie Roll to call for mortars. To their surprise, an airdrop came with cases and cases of actual Tootsie Rolls. While they still needed ammo, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The soldiers found that the candy could be eaten frozen, unlike their rations, giving them valuable calories. They also chewed the candy to soften it, and used it like a putty to patch bullet holes in their equipment, with the sub-zero winds freezing it solid almost immediately. Though the division took heavy losses, their survival rate bordered on miraculous given the circumstances. Those who made it out of the Battle of Chosen Reservoir credited the Tootsie Rolls for their survival and referred to themselves as the Chosen Few. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Why do phone keypads run 1 to 9, but calculator keypads run 9 to 1? In the late 1950s, Bell Laboratories was designing a push-button alternative to the old rotary telephone. The only device in common use at the time with a numerical keypad were adding machines, early calculators. So why didn't Bell copy that layout? One widely circulated theory is that Bell Labs reversed the calculator layout to create a small amount of strategic confusion to slow down the caller, both ensuring they hit the right numbers, and slow down the numbers being sent to the switchboard. Bell Labs actually tested a number of layouts, from two columns, to circles, to strange shapes. The study concluded that the 3x3 version, with 1, 2, 3 in the top row, was the easiest for people to master. Also, when it came time to match letters of the alphabet up to the numbers, Putting 1, 2, 3 at the beginning made more sense to line up with the beginning of the alphabet. But how did the calculator layout come to be? Bell Labs contacted all of the leading calculator manufacturers to find out why they had chosen to put low numbers at the bottom and high numbers at the top. It turns out that decision was largely arbitrary. That was the way the first adding machine had been designed, so that's what everyone else did. Why are people so put off by the word, moist? Researchers from Oberlin College in Ohio and Trinity University in San Antonio ran three different experiments to figure out how many people really find the word moist unpleasant and why. More than 20% of the population studied was averse to the word, but not because of the way it sounds. Rather, its association with bodily functions Seemed to turn people off most, whether they realized it or not. The younger the study participants were, the more likely they were to dislike the word. The more disgust they associate with bodily functions, the less they liked the word moist. Most of the participants who told the researchers they hated the word chalked it up to the phonics. To them, it just sounds ugly and gross. However, people didn't show the same aversion to words like foist and rejoiced, that utilized the same sound. People found the word moist most disgusting when it was accompanied by unrelated positive words like paradise, or when it was accompanied by sexual words. By contrast, when it accompanied food words, people weren't as bothered. Seems obvious. No one wants damp cake. What's the difference between a mortician, a funeral director, and an undertaker? Generally speaking, the terms funeral director and mortician are often interchangeable. Mortician means a person who handles a body in preparation for a funeral. Funeral director typically means someone who owns the business, and many people do both. Undertaker is an antiquated euphemism that refers to someone who handles or undertakes all aspects of the post-death process. Now, things get trickier when you get to coroner and medical examiner. Coroner varies widely from place to place. It can be an elected or appointed position. Sometimes it's the local funeral director or a sheriff's deputy. This is the person with the legal authority to order an autopsy in the case of a suspicious death. In many areas, particularly if that person is also a mortician, They may perform the autopsy, but coroners are not necessarily required to be doctors or have any sort of degree. A medical examiner, on the other hand, must have a degree in medicine, but is not necessarily a forensic pathologist. Where does the word muppet come from? Homer Simpson said, It's not quite a mop, it's not quite a puppet. The other prevailing wisdom is that the word muppet is a portmanteau of marionette and puppet. This misconception has significant staying power because it was actually bolstered by Jim Henson himself. In the early days of the Muppets' television career, Henson identified that as the origin of the word Muppet. Later, he would admit that it was a nonsense word that he had made up and he just liked the sound of it, but that making it sound like a combination of two other words gave it validity. The word Muppet predates The Muppet Show considerably, as it was created during Henson's run with the show Sam and Friends, a series of shorts that ran from 1955 to 1961 on the NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C., where we see the first incarnation of Kermit the Frog, who, as legend states, was made from Henson's mother's old overcoat and a ping-pong ball cut in half. What is a second cousin twice removed? Let's start with the easiest relation here, your cousin. They're the children of your aunts and uncles. A second cousin is someone who has the same great-grandparents but not the same grandparents. Third, fourth, and fifth cousins mean you're going back that many generations for common ancestry. For example, a fourth cousin has the same great-great-great-grandparents as you. When the word removed is used to describe a relationship, it indicates that the two people are from different generations. The term once removed means that there's a difference of one generation. For example, your mother's first cousin is your first cousin once removed. This is because your mother's cousin is one generation younger than your grandparents whereas you're two generations younger than your grandparents. This one generation difference equals once removed. Twice removed would mean that there is a two generation difference. You are two generations younger than the first cousin of your grandmother. So you and your grandmother's cousin are first cousins twice removed. Why does orange juice taste so awful after you brush your teeth? The credit or blame here goes to sodium lauryl sulfate. It's a surfactant, a substance that creates a satisfying froth by lowering the surface tension of water, in this case your saliva, which allows more bubbles to form. Sodium lauryl sulfate also suppresses the tongue's sweetness receptors, and it destroys phospholipids. These are fatty compounds that inhibit the bitter receptors. With the sweet receptors out of commission and the bitter receptors in full force, orange juice loses all of its appeal. Recent research also shows that the fluoride in toothpaste may react with the acetic acid in the juice. But results to bolster this theory are limited. To be on the safe side, remember the old adage, beer before liquor, never sicker. Toothpaste before orange juice, dead. Is the toilet seat the dirtiest thing in your house? We naturally think of toilets as being dirty, but not only is the toilet seat not the dirtiest thing in the house, it's not even the dirtiest thing in the bathroom. The bathroom faucet may contain 20 times the bacteria of the seat, which is still only half as much as your kitchen faucet. Computer keyboards have been found to have a whopping 400 times the bacteria of the toilet seat and wipe down your cell phone, that thing that touches your face, because it can have seven times the bacteria of the toilet seat. British researchers found that the average handbag is three times dirtier than a toilet seat, with a daily use handbag regularly being ten times dirtier. How does that happen? From setting your purse on the bathroom floor, which is why you should never put it on the kitchen counter. In the kitchen, your cutting board is a wonderland for fecal bacteria, with 200 times as much, but it's still not the worst. When Arizona researchers collected 1,000 dishcloths and sponges from kitchens, they found each square inch of the surfaces contained about 134,000 bacteria, including salmonella, 456 times the number on a toilet seat. Dishcloths and sponges harbor these bacteria because they're not changed as frequently as they should be. How much did the creator of Tetris make in royalties? The short answer, initially, nothing. Tetris is far and away the best-selling video game of all time, spawning remakes and ports since it was created more than 30 years ago. Alexey Pachinov devised Tetris in 1985 while working for the Soviet Academy of Science in Moscow as a way to test the computer hardware he worked with. At the time, there was no video game industry in Russia, which was still part of the Communist Soviet Union. Tetris was marketed internationally under Perestroika, Mikhail Gorbachev's plan to open up the Soviet economy by dabbling in capitalism. The game was a huge success, selling 40 million copies. But Pajanov never received a ruble, not one single Kopek. Because Pajanov was working for the government using their equipment when he created Tetris, the government retained the rights to the game, with no royalties being paid to him. After the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991, Pagetnov moved to the United States, but the Russian government still maintained licensing rights to Tetris. It wouldn't be until 1996, when the rights for the game passed to Pagetnov, who then set up the Tetris Company, making new versions of the game and seeing unprecedented success in legally blocking copycat games. What's the difference between a symphony and an orchestra? Orchestra is a broad term for any ensemble with lots of string instruments. Fewer than 50 string players is a chamber orchestra. More than 50 is a symphony orchestra. Chamber orchestras play, unsurprisingly, chamber music, such as Haydn, Mozart, and Vivaldi. On the flip side, A symphony orchestra can boast more than a hundred players, divided into strings, woodwinds, bass, and percussion. As the name suggests, they play symphonies, more complex pieces that usually require at least two dozen different instruments. Think Beethoven, Brahms, and Wagner. Essentially, if an orchestra is big enough to play a symphony, it's a symphony orchestra. But what about philharmonic? A philharmonic is the same size as a symphony, but the term is used to set one ensemble apart from another, such as how Brooklyn has both the Brooklyn Philharmonic and the Brooklyn Symphony. So symphony orchestra is a generic term, whereas philharmonic orchestra is part of a proper name. Why does bright light make us sneeze? It's a question that perplexed even the great Greek philosopher Aristotle 2,300 years ago, when he asked, Why does the heat of the sun provoke sneezing but not the heat of a fire? It has nothing to do with heat, but it is a recognized condition called photic sneeze reflex, or autosomal dominant compelling helio-ophthalmic outburst, or achoo. It affects up to 33% of people, with two-thirds of those being female, and 94% being Caucasian. The leading theory is that the solar sneezes might come from a glitch in the trigeminal nerve. Also known as the fifth cranial nerve, it's the largest and most complex paired nerve in the head, with three major branches leading to the eyes, nasal cavity, and jaw. It's a crowded place in terms of nerve signaling, so it's not surprising that the trigeminal nerve would occasionally crosstalk or get the reflexes wrong. Bright light causes your pupils to contract, and the signal is mistakenly sent to your nose as well. Why is it so much easier to remember music than information that's heard or read? The first key is repetition. When was the last time you listened to a song, even one you didn't like, only one time? Due to the way our brains use networks to store and retrieve information, it becomes much easier to find information that has more associations. Think of each association as a route to the information. When you remember a song, you will remember the tune, the lyrics, the singer's voice, instruments, etc. Just as it's easier to find a location with lots of roads going to it, it's easier to recall a memory that has lots of associations it's also worth considering the power of rhythm and rhyme. Studies have shown that simply making things rhyme greatly aids recall. Both the number of beats and the rhyme provide clues to what the next line will be. If the first two lines are, Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow, you know you're looking for a word that rhymes with snow in roughly the same number of syllables or beats. This greatly reduces the number of candidates your brain has to consider and helps you find the right answer much more quickly. I hope you enjoyed that smorgasbord of facts. Was there one that you found particularly surprising? Share it on social media and tag us as Your Brain on Facts on Facebook and Instagram and Brain on Facts Pod on Twitter. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.